This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. And many of us are talking about the U.S. healthcare system, how it was in many ways unprepared for the virus and really how society was, of course, and how it may change the healthcare system, that is, as a result of COVID-19. Let's get to someone who's got some thoughts on that. Dr. Vivian Lee is president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences, former CEO of the $3.5 billion healthcare system, University of Utah Health. She's got a new book out today. It's entitled The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies That Work for Everyone. She joins us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Lee, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, Tell us a little bit about this book. First of all, I'm curious when you started writing it and how you're thinking about it now in the context of COVID-19. Well, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. You know, when I started writing this book, I really wanted to write about the solutions. You know, we all know, or many of us know, that our healthcare system has not really been functioning all that well, even before COVID. And I wanted to write about the bright spots, some of the great work that people are doing across the country that are really solving the healthcare crisis locally, and then weave together those stories for a national vision, a national narrative for how we could actually make our healthcare system better. I called it the long fixed because I thought it was going to take us a long time. I mean, I think there's a way there, but it's going to take us a long time. Now with the COVID crisis, I'm really hoping it's going to be a lot shorter fix because I think if, if, if COVID has taught us anything, there's just an incredible urgency to really fixing our healthcare system. And so give us one of those fixes because we're all looking for them right now and especially things that we can do uh, pretty immediately, Dr. Lee. Well, the underlying problem in our healthcare system is that we really run a fee-for-service healthcare system, meaning that our hospitals and doctors live hand-to-mouth. And so we are designed to do things that generate fees, like run operating rooms and imaging centers. And when we stop doing that, as we have in the last few months, except for our frontline providers managing COVID, then we actually start to, uh, we start to run the risk of bankruptcy. In fact, we laid off one and a half million doctors and nurses in the last month in April. And we know that there's going to be a rebound in need of care and who knows what's going to happen with COVID. So we need to create a much more resilient healthcare system. And we have some terrific examples around the country. We have medical groups that are functioning in a completely different way, getting paid totally differently by Medicare, groups like ChenMed and Iora Health and CareMore and all across the country. And those healthcare systems are able to care for their patients, their Medicare patients, in a way that is uh, really focused on prevention, really stable and resilient now in the face of COVID, and uh, just keeping them healthier healthier and and, uh, out of the hospital. And so, Dr. Lee, flip it around for us and help us understand how we as patients might need to think about healthcare differently, because I feel like we've all been either experiencing or at least hearing about 
things like telehealth going forward. What are we doing wrong or what can we do better in thinking about delivery of our own health care that can sort of help the system fix itself a bit? Well, that's such a great question. And we have a lot of time to reflect about that right now as we're all staying at home and thinking about uh, various conditions that we're worried about, but we don't want to go into the clinic or right. into the emergency room about, right? So uh, one, of the, one of the products that our company actually um, has made over the years is a, exactly what you're talking about. It's for people who have type 2 diabetes, and the lessons that, that we learn from it apply to other, other conditions mm-hmm. that people might have. But in this case, for people with type 2 diabetes, very common the main issue is we've got to keep our blood sugars under control. And typically, you know, you have to prick your finger a few times a day to check your blood sugars. You might have to go in and get blood tests in the hospital or in the clinic. But the new technologies, there are continuous glucose monitors. These are, these are little devices that are like the size of your key fob. And you put it on your arm or your abdomen. They have a little Bluetooth chip in them. And right. they measure your blood sugar 24-7 sends the tracing to your phone. You can actually look at how your blood trace on your own phone, and then instead of keeping a food log, you take pictures of your meals and snacks, and then you as a diabetic patient, you can actually look and see, oh, you know, Vivian, that second slice of pecan pie wasn't so good for you. Look at what it did to your blood sugars. And then you can text with your coach, and you can video chat with your doctor, all from your phone, all at your convenience. That's the kind of healthcare that we need to be embracing. Now, many of us wanted to do it before, right. but our health insurers didn't necessarily reimburse for it. Right. The good news, the silver lining with COVID is actually now they are reverse, reimbursing for that. They're actually now starting to cover this kind of care. And we need to be demanding that. We need to say, hey, you know what? I can care for my own health better with my own devices and my own convenience. It understands me. It's not trying to pretend that I'm some other kind of patient and doing a one-size-fits-all. This is care for me, and this really needs to be covered by my health. Let's get back to our conversation with Vivian Lee, president of Health Platforms over at Verily Life Sciences. Joining us on the phone, she's also got a new book out. It's out today, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone. So, Dr. Lee, I mean, I guess on the topic of the day and, you know, this pandemic, what are you seeing right now from the medical side and how does it jive with the enthusiasm that we're seeing from a market perspective and maybe some optimism for the economy? What's the medical lens that we should be looking at this through? That's a really, really great question. It's also a really difficult question because what we're seeing in terms of the landscape of COVID really varies so much by region to region, locality to locality, and how people are responding to the crisis uh, in terms of whether they're able to maintain the social distancing and the precautions and the masks uh, versus not as the economy starts to reopen is going to be the big differentiator. You know, one of the things that I, I've been thinking a lot about as, um, as my book has been coming out is just what is going to happen in the longer term, let's say just even around the corner to next year. We have all these employers who have been facing big economic challenges of the last couple of months, really hoping to, hoping to reopen as employees, definitely hoping that the economy gets started again. But one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest certainties that we have for next year in the midst of all this uncertainty is that health care premiums are going to go up next year. Yeah. 
So how can we how can we help as employees, really in the interest of our employers, prepare them and really start to change that narrative and actually start to push back against those rising healthcare costs and get us into a much better place for the next year. You know, I'm listening to us talk and I'm thinking about people who may be listening in. I feel like the three of us are certainly among the very lucky of probably having really good health care, whether it's by our employer or what have you. There are so many people out there that still don't have health care. And I feel like that's got to, we've got to figure that one out, right? We've got to figure out a system that makes sure everybody's part of the system of staying healthier before we can even tackle the rest. That's so true. And you know what? Today, we waste 25 to 30 cents on every dollar in health care. So when people say, you know, there's not enough money to cover the people who are uninsured, I say that is hogwash. There is plenty of money in our health care system. We just need to be able to recover that waste and be able to spend that money more wisely because we actually know all politics aside, we know that people who have access to health care, they do better. They are healthier and they have more, um, more satisfying lives when they have access to that health care. So it's really important that we do that. But I do wonder what's happened and maybe, you know, with healthcare becoming such a business. It's interesting to see ads by healthcare systems, you know, whether it's on TV or cable. And I do wonder, does that make the system better or worse? You know, the fact that healthcare is a business should be or could be in our favor if it were structured right. Uh, the, the metaphor I like to use is healthcare flies into the headwinds of capitalism unlike almost any other industry in this country. And what I mean by that is in our fee-for-service model of care, where we're simply paid for everything we do to people, we as healthcare leaders, as, as somebody who used to lead a healthcare system, invest our resources in things that generate fees. So we don't invest in primary care and we don't invest, invest in prevention. And what we need is to embrace those models of healthcare, which there are some really great examples of right here in our own country that actually use the capitalism as tailwinds, driving innovation for better care. Medicare Advantage is an example, the way in which our military pays for military health is an example, the way in which our VA system pays for VA health, another example. We have right. actually successful examples in this country, and we just need to apply those more broadly. Well, as you, as you know better than most, this is not something that we can, we can solve in seven, eight minutes, but we do appreciate your time today, and I hope we can get uh, some more time in the future, because it's, it's a really important subject, and uh, I'm glad you've written the book that you have. The book that is just out, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare crisis with strategies that work for everyone written by dr vivian lee she's the president of health platforms at verily life sciences joining us on this tuesday on the phone from new york it's an important one jason and it's not going to be an easy one but it's with all the money that's spent we've got to be able to do it better certainly here in the united states Healthcare flies into the headwinds of capitalism that's quite a quote this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on Bloomberg Radio. In the magazine, there's a great story about the Jersey Shore. And yes, it does reference the TV show that Carol Masser thought was just a documentary about her life. But it actually wasn't. Uh, I kid, I kid, because she is the furthest thing from... Uh, just life. watch it, Kelly. Who, I know where who, you live. Who was the uh, Who was the star? Uh, oh, God. I forget all their names, right? Yeah. 
Mike the situation. Snooki, who's now a mother with several kids. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, uh, Devin Leonard went there. Uh, He's one of our favorite writers at Bloomberg Business Week, always right on the news and telling a great tale about the Jersey Shore, but also a cautionary one when it comes to the economy. The beaches are open, sort of. Devin Leonard joins us on the phone to give us the breakdown of what he saw and coming out of this Memorial Day, what we may see for the rest of the summer. Uh, So, Devin, what's going on on the shore? Well, I mean, you know, it's sort of a it's sort of the reopening of America in in a microcosm. I I guess I guess these towns are are, are beginning to open up, you know, up and down the, you know, the East Coast. But uh, they're full of businesses that are, you know, basically need to make or basically they make all their money in you know six months really just four months of the year beginning with memorial day in a lot of cases they couldn't even reopen for memorial day so so a lot of folks are are you know wondering whether or not they're gonna be able to survive but at the same time you have the mayors in all these towns have to worry about all these people who are worried about uh you know being inundated with people from you know other parts of the country and bringing uh covid19 with them so it's you know it's a really difficult situation yeah, I don't know how they're going to make it work. I was thinking about this, Devin. You know, my family and I um, and extended family members often, you know, rent a house down in the Jersey Shore in Ocean City, New Jersey. The boardwalk is part of the life, um, you know, and I, I don't know how you do that. You can't do that. But I do wonder about these businesses who write the bulk of their business happens in these summer months and it's not going to be business as usual. No, I, I mean, you know, I, I went to Seaside Heights, you know, again, at, you know, the you know the place where the MTV show, you know, Jersey Shore was filmed, <laughs> and, and I walked around the boardwalk with uh, Anthony Vaz, who's the, who's the mayor, and uh, you know, basically, he just wanted me, he just wanted me to go hear from the from the local business owners whether they own bars, you know, well, most of them were did own bars and restaurants because the. You know the the uh, arcade folks, you know, can't can't reopen. You know, you have the the whole casino piers, which has you know all the attractions. You know, that's closed. But he wanted to hear from me. He wanted me to hear from them. You know, you know the situation that that they're in, and you know most of the people were saying, you know, we can't survive. You know, the restaurants are just doing takeout. They were saying it's five percent of their, you know, you know the revenue, and you know they can't make it. I guess unless they can open up more, and they can't because. Uh, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey won't let them yet. And is there a sense that this could evolve to a more open situation? Like what's the, either the timeline or what's the most optimistic case here, uh, Devin? Well, Jason, I mean, that's, it's, it's really interesting. I didn't really understand this, but this is happening all over the country too. All of these states, uh, you know, are sort of reopening in phases. Right. Uh, you, you know, in some cases, the, the, the towns control certain things about how they reopen too. But so, what we're going to see is is um, and you and basically you'd see it in Myrtle Beach, right? I didn't go to Myrtle Beach, but I talked to some people down there, and you know, they're they're in the south. They you know they have less uh, you know less COVID nineteen there, but. So, so they've reopened. They, they've allowed the states allowed restaurants to uh, uh, you know, offer indoor seating, but only you know, only to fifty percent of their capacity. But they had to do tons and tons of cleaning. Uh, a, a woman told me, you know, literally, it takes ten minutes to you know to flip a table. You know, because you have to you have to disinfect it, wipe it down. You know, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's four steps. 
she sounded tired just talking about it. Um, and and uh, she, and you know she she was only using twenty five percent of her capacity because fifty you know was too much. So, but but really to, to you know to, to to directly answer your question, even that's not going to be enough for you know for a lot of businesses, particularly restaurants. And, and you know and if you're a boutique, you you know you, you know you're going to have to limit the number of people people inside in the. The um, the president of the Myrtle Beach Area Chamber of Commerce told me that she expected 25 percent of their members, you know, to you know not to make it, uh, you know, that's out of you know 2,700 members, which I thought was an amazing thing for somebody for the Chamber of Commerce. They're supposed to be positive, and yeah. you know, she couldn't do it. Yeah, well, right, exactly. I mean, I, the 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 business formula, the business equation, right, for profitability is just kind of so fragile. Just when right. everything goes goes right, that if you throw anything, and especially something on this level, um, you really do have to wonder about the amount of businesses that can survive on the other side. I do think, you know, Devin, a lot about the conflict between officials at a higher level versus the local level. You know, there really is, and there's a lot of people talking about that. There's just kind of no clear consensus. About about what to do, but there's a lot of conflict, right, about how to move forward. Well, I, I think I think uh, Mayor Vaz, he would probably like things to move a little quicker. Mm. Uh, I, but he he doesn't control restaurants. At the same time, he, he does. The town does control the hotels and motels. And in June, they're going to be they're going to be allowed to open up twenty five percent of their units. Uh, so, so so you know that's a little quicker, but. Uh, you know, that's he, he still has to, you know, this is a town where, you know, there's, tw- you know, twenty nine hundred residents. But on a on a hot summer day, the, you know, the number of people swells to 30,000. So, right. I, I, yeah, I know. It's just it's just it's just incredible when, when you think about it. So he's trying to and he needs to do something to limit the number of people who are coming. He's hoping for 50 percent, which I guess is. 15,000, it still sounds like a lot, but it, it just sounds incredibly tricky. And I, I do wonder about, as law enforcement or enforcement tries to, you know, prevent the crowds from mm-hmm. coming, what kind of conflicts we're going to see. I mean, it kind of scares me a little bit because, you know, people are antsy to get out. Well, I did talk to some epidemiologists who, who, who said, you know, Summer's coming. People are going to need need to get out there. You know, there is a way to do it. They weren't saying no, no way, don't do it. It's it's too dangerous. But but there have to be some some sort of limits. And and you know, that, to your point, yeah. I mean, how, how do you set that? How do you how do you enforce that? Especially in a town like Seaside Heights, which is really you know a fun town, a party town, yeah. and, and um, you know people people don't people go there to let loose. And, yeah. And, uh, so, um, so I, I think just that in and of itself makes it dif- difficult. Yeah, it definitely does. All right. Well, it's a really nice read and a good reality check, uh, Devin Leonard. Uh, always good to catch up with you, projects and investigations reporter. His project this week was figuring out the Jersey Shore, and it's a really nice piece. You should check it out on the Bloomberg and on Bloomberg.com. And it's going to be something we're going to keep watching for sure. I- I have to say, one of the first beaches I went to was my older sisters took me to um, Seaside Heights specifically, and it's it's it is it's like where You're you know, college kids here, go. I, I know, I know, I know, but I mean, it's just they require you know so much of their livelihood is what happens in the summer season of all those totally. people coming in. Crazy and kids so, like you roaming crazy. around I was buying a, funnel cakes. I was a really little kid. I wasn't. I know. All I'm right. just going to say. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. 
So as recent tweets show, President Trump continuing to point the finger at China when it comes to the pandemic. This too, as U.S.-China tensions, as we know, and as we've been reporting over the last week or so, have once again increased. In today's version of Business Week Economics, someone we often turn to when we want to talk about what's going on in China, how the U.S. is approaching the nation. David Riedel is president and founder of Riedel Research Group. He rejoins us uh, on the phone from San Francisco. Hey, David, so nice to have you back with us. How are you? How's your life? Oh, very well. It's sheltering in place like everyone else, but uh, watching things from around the world from, from, from here in uh, the Bay Area. Yeah, I'm curious about the conversations, too, as the world reopens. What are you guys discussing and, and the impact it's having? Well, you're starting to see a lot of Asia emerge from this. Of course, we saw South Korea and China emerge sort of first. You're seeing some of Southeast Asia come out of this now. Unfortunately, a lot of the concern has now shifted to Latin America, uh, where you've got some of the, the, the largest growing cases down there. And, and, and country's really taking a, a different view. But in the emerging markets world, uh, Asia is the place to look first. I think Latin America is a place to be a little cautious, uh, and we're still looking for opportunities in, in Europe, but it's hard to tell what direction some of those economies are going right now. David, I want to ask you about Hong Kong, because I feel like that's a situation where, you know, we were very focused on it last fall, and I, I was reminded by some colleagues here at Bloomberg of how focused uh, we were on that as a newsroom. And then obviously the pandemic sort of overtook everything in many ways. Now Hong Kong is back front and center. Help us sort of remind everyone sort of what's going on there and what the implications are, especially at this increasingly fragile moment. Absolutely. It, it is a really, really important topic for people to stay on, on, on top of. And also, it, it reminds us that uh, it, despite the, the pandemic, other things are happening around the world as well. Uh, your listeners will remember that uh, China, Beijing, tried to impose a, a change in the ju- judicial law, the extradition from Hong Kong, so making it easier for Hong Kong citizens to be brought into the mainland justice system. And this sparked a huge rally, uh, a number of rallies and protests over months and months. Uh, they eventually pulled back from that threat of uh, implementing that law, but still uh, the protest remained. And, and as you'll remember, we were having daily, almost hourly updates uh, on how those those uh, protests were going. And so now we uh, everyone had forgotten about Hong Kong for a long time, except for, of course, Beijing. Now, Beijing realized last week that uh, they've given Hong Kong 14 years to write a national security law, and Hong Kong really hasn't made any good progress. So they said, okay, we'll write it. Uh, and that really is the crux of the of the issue here. Uh, this is another attempt by Beijing to um, change the the semi-autonomous nature of Hong Kong uh, and and really start to increase uh, Beijing's grip on on the city. So, where do you think China its its goal or intent is longer term here? Well, longer term, it's clear that they intend for uh, Hong Kong to be yet another Chinese city. Uh, they certainly they've agreed to the. Uh, one country, two systems agreement mm-hmm. uh, until I think 2045, uh, but that's that, that's where we're headed. So I think this is an inexorable move towards increasing integration of Hong Kong into China. And unfortunately, the world and the, certainly the world of investors loses um, in that situation uh, what they'd really considered their best way to get access to Chinese names. Hong Kong was always respected as a market with great liquidity, very good and skilled regulators, good rule of law. Uh, and the ability to to get access to the growth in China just next door. And that really gets called into question with some of these steps. And so frame that for us within the broader context of U.S.-China tensions, which again have, have escalated on the trade front as well. 
what do we need to be most worried about uh, sort of from a self-interested perspective and maybe from a self-interested perspective in in terms of the the global economy how do these escalating tensions ultimately play through in your best estimation well we'll start with the premise that it's never good when your two largest economies in the world are are having conflict and having right. having disputes um so that's never good for the for the global economy especially when the global economy doesn't need any more headwinds they really need an opportunity to to heal and, and to grow uh, like we saw coming out of the great recession so uh, it is a big issue now that we've got trade back on the on the um, uh, table. Uh, there is no way that China is going to be able to achieve their commitments of increased purchases from the U.S. Uh, in the next 18 months. Uh, if they were going to do that, they'd have to buy every drop of energy uh, produced in the U.S. period uh, in order to achieve that $200 billion goal that they'd agreed to in the past. So I think you're going to hear more about out of the uh, Republican administration about how China's failed on this this uh, trade deal. I wish they wouldn't go down that path. I wish that they would realize that this is a new situation, uh, and and uh, cooler heads do need to prevail. But unfortunately, I don't see that happening on either side in this case. David, you know, do you think this conflict or this you know renewed conflict between the U.S. and China is real, or is it just a case of? President Trump just, you know, counting down to the election and kind of saying what he thinks his base wants to hear. And secondly, when China does go along with something the U.S. wants to do, is it just because China's marking time until it develops its own industries domestically? And just got about a minute here. Sure. I think that you're right that there is a political element to this. I hope that uh, there is also some longer term thought about how both economies and societies are better positioned as a result of this. Uh, But Beijing plays to their base, as does Washington, D.C. So uh, I hope that cooler heads will prevail. I hope it doesn't lead to any sort of uh, mistaken conflicts in the South China Sea or anything like that. But we need to uh, sort of calm nerves a little bit, calm down the rhetoric a little bit, stop pointing fingers. Uh, and get back to the work of repairing this global economy. Yeah, it's really interesting to to get your perspective, David Riedel. We we really appreciate it. President and founder of Riedel Research Group joining us on the phone from the Bay Area, as he said, you know, a really good vantage point. And he's been looking after this for quite some time, Carol. And yeah, it echoes some of what we heard last week from our own Andy Brown, who's been watching this very closely. And a reminder that the Hong Kong issue is not a domestic one, ultimately, for China and this city that it's trying to, in its estimation, bring on side. This has massive implications, especially, candidly, thinking sort of parochially for our Wall Street community, because this has been the outpost in many ways in Asia. And as David rightly said, a way to to really play into the Asian market that didn't exist anywhere else. Yeah, it absolutely will have an impact on global financial markets, right? And and in terms of uh, various markets, in terms of access or where you thought things were moving. All right. Uh, Great conversation. Always is with David. Understands those emerging markets and in particular what's happening in emerging Asia. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This week in our Bloomberg Business Week Small Business Survival Guide, finding a fresh start in bankruptcy court makes sense. And I guess we should get ready for more of this. And we'll see if this certainly gives a, a, a leg up. In, in particular to some of those small businesses, Jason, we just talked about the hard time that that small business world is having. Bloomberg News Editor Demetra Kassanides joins us on the phone from New Jersey. So, Demetra, talk to us a little bit about the approach, because Jason and I were just talking about, you know, it feels like a lot of the large businesses certainly have had a lot of lifelines to reach out to, but the small businesses, they are really getting caught. So talk to us about bankruptcy and how that might give them an option. 
a viable option. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not necessarily a pleasant reality to confront, mm-hmm. but sometimes, um, you know, after going through stages of looking for lifelines, bankruptcy might feel like a reasonable option and it could be, especially if small businesses consider Chapter 11, because Chapter 11 is really an opportunity um, to reorganize, and that might be just what they need. They, they might have a little more flexibility to be able to handle some of the debts uh, to really rethink about what what they're going to do with the business. And so, you know, it's not the first thing that comes to mind, especially for small businesses. Chapter 7 sometimes is more typically something that they look at in terms of liquidation and having to pay off all their debts and not really reorganize. So we walk through some steps um, for small businesses to consider this as, as we call it, a fresh start. You know, it can, it can seem like it's anything but, but... You know, if you start to talk to your creditors, talk to your lawyers, and really put a plan in place, it it might be that what you're going to see emerging is a plan that will actually enable you to come back even stronger. Well, and Demetra, it's also interesting to think about this right now at a time where I feel like people and companies to some extent are being given maybe a little more latitude given the expanse of this, the severity of it, that maybe it gets, uh, maybe there's less of a stigma at this point. If you have to go through this, this is a time where people say, well, yeah, I mean, summer of 2020 was a time where the, the world was just turned upside down. Sure, exactly. I mean, I think that the stigma question is definitely a big one. It it most certainly affects your credit. You know, it's not as though this is not a process that is serious. It's a serious process. It will affect things going forward. But, you know, really key to something like considering Chapter 11 is, you know, do you have something at the heart of your business that is worth preserving, that you want to restructure, and that you want to see keep going? And if that's the case, there are measures that you can take. And in fact, there's even a very recent provision that was added to Chapter 11, just as we were getting into this very um, challenging period in February. It's a, a subchapter five. It's a little technical, but it essentially has made reorganization a little easier and a little cheaper. And it's lowered, the, let's call it the threshold for the time being for yeah. this year and into 2021. And so it is really something that a lot of small businesses might not be aware of, but they should be aware of it. And they should really see this as a solution, not as something that is going to, you know, sort of be stuck to them as a label and really drag them down. Yeah. And it's interesting. And, you know, listen, I, you know, none of us are lawyers here, but, you know, and you and a bankruptcy court lawyer will tell you because there's so many nuances to all of this. Right. Because there's instances where, you know, you got to remember, it's going to cost you money to do this. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting in this story, too, you talk about some people have to give up some equity in that reorganized, you know, company. So, you know, it's not like you come out with your company and everything's hunky dory. Like you might have to give up uh, a lot in order to do this. That's absolutely right. And um, that's the one thing I wanted to make sure I wasn't sort of downplaying was that it's as a big decision, an important, a serious one, and a tough one. But when you're looking out at the world right now and really considering, is this a business that's going to carry on? Should it carry on? Is there a service that we're delivering that really is worthwhile? But because of the pandemic, you know, we've been challenged like so many others. It is certainly in the category of possibilities to raise with the professionals that are advising you. And, 
you know, and to turn to those people and to really examine everything carefully. So, you know, I think that that is something that we just felt like we wanted to get that message out there. We were not hearing that a lot from small businesses. We hear about Chapter 11 practically daily now, right, when it comes to very big businesses, whether it's JCPenney or Hertz was a recent one, Neiman Marcus. Um, So, you know, I think that when you hear those headlines and you're a small business owner, you you know, you might not even consider that this is a viable option for you. And it it is and it could be and it could be the fresh start and just a new path that you're going to go down where your business is going to be a little different because everybody's having to reconsider their businesses right now. That is that is so true. And it's interesting. I think we've heard I can't remember who it was who said that, you know, get ready for the lawyers, because whether it's divorce lawyers or bankruptcy (laughs) lawyers, like they are going to be busy on the other side. They always are. They always find a way. Bankruptcy lawyers are going to be very busy and (laughs) maybe the divorce lawyers, too. And the and the people handling, you know, uh, leases and things like that. But it's true. It is unfortunately yeah. the way these things go. All right, it Dimitri. Is the system we live in, for sure. Always nice to check in with you. Uh, take care of yourself, Dimitri Kassaniti. She's Bloomberg News editor, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just repeating what we are hearing. No, it's true. It's true, <laughs> um, and we know that in, in any crisis, I mean, that tends to be something. But it is really good advice. I really like the Small Business Survival Guide because, as we've been talking about, it, and I think we've been spending an appropriate amount of time on it. This is an economy that's ultimately driven by small businesses. I live in a small town. You live sort of in a small town, very, very close to a very big city. But we do a lot to support small businesses right. to avoid some of the bigger names coming in to just kind of support that yeah. that network. We think it's important to the community. Yeah, also. absolutely. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, it is time for the drive to the close. Alan Zafrin is back with us, founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital. He joins us once again on the phone from Foster City, California. We were so eager, both of us, to get to you. We started the introduction together. (laughs) Hey, Alan, how's it going? Uh, It's going great. We've got a little heat wave out here and it it couldn't be more beautiful. Lack of smog because no one's been on the roads for a couple months. It is a picture perfect day here in California. It is sort of amazing, and I know we talked a lot about this when we last had you on a, a, probably a month or so ago, Alan, you know, how much it has changed both, you know, literally and figuratively the scene out there. I, I did want to ask you, you know, what you have encountered of late, because I know you're very involved in the Silicon Valley community in terms of folks there are thinking about kind of the future of, of Silicon Valley in many ways, both sort of helping in the short term, but also, you know, some of the implications for a more virtual Silicon Valley in some ways, maybe folks fleeing the high real estate prices. Like, what's the net effect here, you think? Uh, there's winners and losers. And as usual, it's a pragmatic optimism. Hmm. So that's a key term, pragmatic, because uh, if you're a, a startup, you You've battened down the hatches here. You've absolutely tried to create as much runway, possibly if possible, two years' time with enough cash to weather 
what could still be a pretty difficult economic environment despite the stock market going up. But again, in the midst of chaos, there's always opportunity. So you're seeing that with the Zoom videos and the Teladoc healthcare's. There are new cottage industries that uh, come up immediately when people have to work from home. There's all kinds of applications they have to think about how to get their office at home to work more effectively. All kinds of gadgets are now being creative to think about ways to operate when the confines of a loud family try and operate around you at the same time. It's fascinating. This is destructive capitalism and destructive creation all at the same time. So, um, you know, sadly, it's very difficult if, uh, unfortunately, this, this, we all, as we all know, those that can least afford are the ones that are most adversely hit by this economic downturn and are going to be the ones that take the longest to come back. But this also breeds American entrepreneurialism. And, and this is from the ashes rises a, a new bull market and a new growth engine of America going forward. Yeah, I do hope we figure out some better ways to cover uh, certainly those that have, you know, the less fortunate, the more vulnerable, because they have really been exposed and are, and in many ways are still struggling. I do wonder, Alan, what's the R word that you use more often right now? Is it recovery or recession? <laughs> it's both. We're in a recession, but we may end up being in the world's, the, the U.S.'s shortest recession of all time. I mean, most recessions last at least a year. Um, this has been anything but average. Um, this is absolute recovery. When you see stock markets already up 37% from a peak, it's telling you that the likelihood that you're going to go back down and retest the lows um, is pretty small. Um, and what's, what's interesting also is to take into account that you are witnessing, uh, at least recently, a broadening of uh, stock market activity. You're finally seeing small caps and value stocks beginning to pick up and do a little better here. And we're right at a critical point here. You know, we're right at the 200-day moving average on the S&P 500. Mm. Um, And uh, if we break through this 3,000 level and hold, you're going to see capitulation because, as you know, this is probably the most despised, hated bull market we've seen yet, meaning there's been very little participation. There are a number of investors that are short or in cash, and there's going to be the fear of missing out. If they're particularly institutional investors, if they're benchmarked to an index, They're going to have to capitulate if prices go higher, even if we're still in an environment where there's a 20 percent unemployment rate and millions upon millions of people unemployed whose jobs won't come back for several years. And that's what I'm just having such a hard time getting my head around, Alan, is this notion of where this optimism is coming from. And I fully concede that we view this, or I I, I shouldn't say we, I, I definitely view this from a different lens sitting here in the tri-state area and seeing the devastation that this has wrought on New York City, you know, a city that is still under complete lockdown in many ways. Um, And, you know, companies not talking about going back to work, even in any sort of reasonable measure until the fall. And and I also understand intellectually that the rest of the country is not the same. But we also talk to doctors on this show every day who warn us about a second wave and all of those different things. Is the market just being rational about this or is it being overly optimistic? Um, we don't know if it's being overly optimistic because neither you or I can predict whether yes. the second wave will be coming and how bad it will be. Uh, given how devastating the economic downturn has been to so many, it'll take a lot to shut down the economy again. Yeah. But, but I would assert that the stock market is in some ways uh, bifurcated from the general economy. And there's two ways to think about it. 
One is the kinds of businesses that are represented in the stock market index you'll look at are not barber shops and hair salons and small restaurants, something very different. The other thing is, think of it this way. The federal government, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government have printed or will print something together on the on the order of $10 trillion of spending power in a $22 trillion economy. The money has to go somewhere. And yeah. if cash is paying zero and a 10-year treasury bond pays less than 1%, some of that money is going to go into a stock where I can get a 2% dividend and I'll just hold it for 10 years. And my odds are eventually the economy will get better. So that money is finding its way into equities partly because there is no alternative. And that's what pumping money into that closed system does. It has to get back into the assets like stocks when cash pays nothing. Well, I saw this movie before, Alan Zafrin. Uh, I thought that was the story coming off of the uh, financial crisis. That's pretty much the same story. The, the, the thing about this event, there's a lot to be said, they learned from the 2008 crisis, and the Fed played played its playbook, as did the federal government, much more quickly and with much bigger firepower. And that's yeah. why you speed at least at least the financial markets have recognized that and assumed things will be better more quickly than they were bouncing out of 08 and 09. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. All right, great comparisons, great insights as always. Really appreciate it. Alan Zafrin, founding partner, co-CEO of IEQ Capital, on the phone from Foster City, California. He's got a long history working for Goldman, uh, you know, a lot of uh, well-to-do clients who trust him with their money, candidly, and he sees a lot. And, and it's good to get his perspective also from Silicon Valley versus New York City uh, in some ways because they tend to see things a little bit differently. I think yeah. back to our conversation with Tom Siebel. Yeah, totally. It's good for us to get all of these perspectives. Uh, it's just much smarter. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We'll be right back.